Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. There's really only been one story this week. Dominic Cummings' trip to Durham during lockdown, followed by his trip to Barna Castle, has been a revelation which has cut through to people across the country. And beyond. It's hard for politicians to get known outside the UK, but the Prime Minister's advisor has managed it. I'm looking here at headlines. Uh, Scandalo Cummings in La Repubblica. Le Mans talking about no regrets, no excuses. The New York Times very punchily the toxic aid of Boris Johnson. Meanwhile, approval of the government has dropped sharply. One minister has resigned. Conservative MPs are adding their names to a list, calling for Dominic Cummings to go. But at the time of recording, he is still there. So what does this route mean for the government's coronavirus strategy? That strategy is going to rely even more heavily next week on persuading the public to follow the rules as the government rolls out its test and trace system. What does Johnson's determination to keep Cummings and Downing Street say about him and his government? What does Cummings' power say about the role of special advisers? We're going to talk about all that today, as well as look at the subject which used to be Cummings' pride and joy, his prime focus, Brexit. If the EU and the UK want more time to sort out their future arrangements, what options are there? We've got a new report out and we'll talk to its author. So I'm delighted to be joined today by Hannah White, our Deputy Director, by Jill Rutter, our Senior Fellow, and by Tim Montgomery, Political Columnist. Tim, really good to have you here. Thank you very much for inviting me, Bronwyn. Tell me, these international headlines, it's not a good look, is it? It's a terrible look. And I've been a Brexit supporter and uh, remain a Brexit supporter. But one of the things that I thought was very important for a Brexit Britain was to show the world that not just that we were open for business, but that we would be competent, that we would be, you know, the best that we could be. Um, that was my hope for uh, Britain post-Brexit, freed from what I see as a sort of bureaucratic, um, only able to move as a slowest uh, vehicle in the convoy European Union. I hope that we would uh, we would impress the rest of the world. And I'm afraid this is just another example where, uh, my, although my support for Brexit is undimmed, I'm afraid we're not exactly uh, covering ourselves in glory as a country, certainly not as a government. Only for theatre, perhaps, our old skill at that. Um, I want, and I want to come back to that question of um, not just Britain's international standing, but whether the kind of quality of British government and the respect for it and faith in it is, is dropping. So let's all of us begin to dig into this question. Tim, let me ask you just straightforwardly, what should Boris Johnson have done? I think he could have got away with an apology from Dominic Cummings if it had come quite early in the uh, whole drama. Um, I think the British people are reasonable people. And I think if Dominic Cummings, in my view, clearly broke the rules. Um, but I think there would have been sympathy given the circumstances that uh, Dominic Cummings eventually set out in that Downing Street Rose Garden press conference. There might have been sympathy with him, certainly if we hadn't had the rather silly story about testing your eyesight <laughs> on a 60-mile round trip. Governments can put up with derision, Bronwyn, but when you start to be laughed and scoffed at, I think that's a dangerous place for the government to, to be in. So I think the government could have got away with it if there'd been a sort of early contrition and sense of early humility. Um, But I'm afraid now, uh, I think the government's in a very bad place. It's had about five days of very bad publicity. I think Dominic Cummings will now survive, at least for the time being. And every time track and trace or every time a controversial government policy is mentioned, you know, Dominic Cummings will be part of the news coverage. And I'm afraid it will remind people of this sorry episode. So I'm afraid uh, uh, there's something of an albatross around Boris Johnson's neck because of this, uh, this whole business. 
Jill, how much does it damage next week's strategy? A lot of uh, details, not all the details, but a lot of details are coming out about test and trace. I think, uh, as Tim was saying, I think it's made it quite difficult. I mean, you saw that, I think, with Boris Johnson yesterday at the Liaison Committee being probed by Greg Clark. Is this mandatory or is this just advice? And with Matt Hancock this morning as well, doing the media round on the new strategy, stressing it's your civic duty. You have to do this for the good of the nation. And the trouble is that the immediate comeback every time they say that is, well, does it apply to everybody or does it apply to everybody except Dominic Cummings? Because that was after all the advice we all thought we had back in March and April when Dominic Cummings decided to go up to Durham and decided to take his test drive. So I think it really does make it more difficult. I think the important thing for the government is to, is to really try and reestablish that actually, you know, whatever Cummings did or didn't do and whatever the sort of credibility blip there, it really is important for the whole nation's public health that people do pay attention to the message, not just focus on the coming story. But the more it goes on, I think it's more difficult to, to just convey that quite simple message. Hannah, what would have happened if the cabinet secretary or a very senior permanent civil servant had done, had done this? I think the trickiness, of course, which would be the same as it has been with, with Dominic Cummings, would be if you've been integral to the setting of a strategy for everybody else, then um, being seen... Um, whether you can make a technical argument that you are staying within the within the rules, looking as though you're doing something that, that most people would have thought you couldn't contemplate in those circumstances um, would be equally difficult, I think, for a, for a senior civil servant as it would have been for uh, the prime minister's most senior advisor. Um, I think, you know, the considerations would have been similar for, for Boris Johnson. He would have been thinking about how core that person was to the implementation of, of the government strategy. Um, and how, you know, if you had sort of change at the top at a time like this, that obviously wouldn't be um, conducive to, to, to dealing with the, the main problem at the moment. But I guess it would also come down to whether uh, Boris Johnson had the same degree of loyalty to that person and whether actually, you know, uh, it was seen as uh, the distraction was, was more important than the... Uh, um, the, the keeping that person in place. Tim, yeah, why, why do you think Boris Johnson was so determined to hold on to Dominic Cummings? Well, I, I think two obvious reasons have been very well rehearsed. Um, they got to know each other very well during the Vote Leave campaign. It was not a campaign, campaign that was expected to succeed in taking Britain out of the European Union. It did succeed. Um, about a year ago, I think, Bronwyn, I can't remember the exact dates, but the Tories were in single digits in some opinion polls ahead of the European elections. You know, the, some people were wondering whether the Brexit party would essentially eclipse the Conservative party in certain parts of the country. And um, yet the Tories won an 80-seat majority um, in the December general election. And so with Dominic Cummings at Boris Johnson's right hand on both occasions. And... Um, there was a lot of tension within the Vote Leave campaign, you know, uh, in the early days of that campaign. And there was a, an attempt to oust uh, Dominic Cummings then because he's always been this combative, controversial personality. And, you know, the, the warning he made to uh, people like Matthew Elliott, who was running the campaign with him, was, um, you know, you get rid of me and most of the rest of the staff will walk as well. And I don't know what's been said behind the scenes in perhaps more subtle ways than that, but I do wonder how much... Boris Johnson wonders he wouldn't just potentially lose Dominic Cummings if um, 
his senior advisor was forced out. But how many of the other people in number 10 actually owe their loyalty or feel they owe their loyalty as much to him as to the prime minister? And I think that the combination of those things, um, I think probably looms quite large in the mind of a prime minister who does like to delegate to his machine, perhaps more than most prime ministers we've had in recent years. Tim, just coming through, um, courtesy of the Telegraph, that an investigation by Durham Police, according to the Telegraph, has concluded that Dominic Cummings did commit a minor breach of the guidelines when he drove to Barnard Castle on April 12th. That's the, the round trip he did on uh, on Easter Sunday, on his, his, his wife's birthday. Um, they're not commenting at the, on the moment on, the, on, the, on the, the big trip he made up to his parents. What's your reaction to that? Breaking news on a, on a podcast. <laughs> um, I think... Um... I think we should be careful just to absolutely be clear what, you know, how minor the, the level of the breach. But I think this does potentially uh, move the story on in a significant way because up until now we've had an insistence from every cabinet minister and every um, every sort of you know conservative commentator who's been defending Dominic. Uh, Cummings, that no law was breached, that there was nothing unlawful done. Well, if the police are saying a breach was um, committed and Dominic Cummings does not choose to challenge that uh, police charge, I think we're in different territory. And at the very least, I think we're looking then for an apology from Number 10 and from Dominic Cummings and possibly a resignation is in order of the kind that lots of us have been demanding for a number of days. And this is before, of course, any police comment on whether or not he broke the highway code of, of driving while his eyesight might have been in doubt. I mean, that's an entirely separate question, if you like. In, in your view, Tim, I mean, how many Conservative MPs demanding a resignation would it take to put real pressure on Johnson over this? Well, I would have said 20, 30, you know, if you'd asked me this question two or three days ago. Okay, okay. we're well well beyond that. Well beyond that. And and that is one of the extraordinary things about this. You know, a majority of 80 sounds an awful lot. But this government, after lockdown, is going to have to do extraordinarily difficult things on tax and spending. It's going to be asking Tory MPs to vote against, you know, a lot of their instincts, ideological, and to save their seats. And um, they're going to turn around, a good number of them, well, they, and they've told me this privately, is that they say, well, you took absolutely blind notice of me during the Dominic Cummings affair, and now suddenly my vote matters to you, suddenly I'm important to you. So they have created this sense of frustration and real sort of alienation with parts of the parliamentary party, which is not good when you've still got four and a half years of a parliament to run. Yeah, and so we've got that pressure building on one side and then we've got the police uh, on the other. Labour really doesn't have to say anything at this point, does it? Jill, sorry. No, I was going to come in and say, actually, it's very interesting. We had an event at the Institute for Government just after the election. And I think I think it was Stephen Crabb said that basically there will be no Conservative revolts for really quite a long time. Boris Johnson delivered this massive election victory and was an incredibly strong position. But we've already seen in the last week, we saw the government having to back down on the migrant surcharge for NHS and care workers when various conservatives signal that they back a Labour amendment. Uh, you know, yesterday we saw the Prime Minister give, being given grief by various conservatives on the liaison committee. So I think it's really quite interesting how rebellious the Conservative Party has become. And, and I think actually you're right that the sort of Labour tactic, and I think a very smart Labour tactic through all of this, has been 
we don't need to do anything really. We can just sort of remind things. Put, they put, I thought they put out really quite a good attack video uh, on Twitter on Sunday about the Cummings affair. But they don't really need to do anything. There is enough sort of arguments within the Conservative Party that they've sort of lit the blue touch paper uh, or the you know, Guardian and the Mirror did. And they can sit back and watch. And that's actually a rather nice position for the opposition to be in, that you don't actually have to make the running. I think this will actually impact, as Tim says, on the government's legislative plans, um, potentially, because we heard immediately after the election um, sort of uh, indications that really, certainly with the uh, Brexit legislation that was was brought through in order to um, uh, implement the the UK leaving at the end of January and other legislation since, that really the government wasn't even formulating a concession strategy uh, which would normally have for a piece of legislation, you would normally have the plans, the, the places you plan to give way and an openness to, to listening to other parliamentarians who want to bring forward amendments, you know, often constructive amendments, flaws they've seen in legislation and that there was really an edict from number 10 that actually we're not, we're not interested in amending our legislation because we don't have to, because we have this 80 seat majority. And I think it's right that actually, you know, whether that is a robust, as robust as number 10 uh, used to be able to be confident it was after this affair is, is now going to be really in question. Well, let's move on ourselves, but not very far, and just talk a bit about special advisors themselves. Um, I'm going to read us all uh, a bit from the Code for Special Advisors, which is quite a long uh, thing, saying that they're, they're, they're temporary civil servants, and so to an extent bound by the Civil Service Code, but with some exceptions, obviously they can be, they don't have to be uh, politically impartial. But then there are some nuggets in it, and uh, here's one of them. Special advisors must not take public part in political controversy through any form of statement, whether in speeches or letters to the press or books, social media, articles or leaflets. They must observe discretion and express comment with moderation, avoiding personal attacks and would not normally speak in public for their minister or the department. Well, do we need a new code or just new special advisors? I think the code is looking very out of date now. Um, Dominic Cummings clearly is a very powerful figure in his own right. I think the even more interesting position as a special advisor in some ways is David Frost, who is the government's chief negotiator. He's technically a special advisor. He was being asked quite a lot of questions yesterday at the Future Relationship Committee about exactly what his sort of status is and his role is, who he reports to. He said he only re really reports to XS Committee and to the Prime Minister. He's made a big public speech, and we've seen him sort of engaging in sort of quite public uh, public not exactly spats, but public exchanges with the EU's chief negotiator, Michel Barnier. And I think, you know, it looks to me as though this government clearly wants to use special advisors. And I think uh, Alex Thomas was talking last week about SARS. He sort of brought in people from outside to knock heads together. You could say, look, um, politicians are trying to bring about change. And what you really need if you're trying to do that is have someone who sees the world the way you do and reflects back to you at the end of the week, look, this is what we're trying to do. I mean, that would be the, the riposte to, to, to this, uh, not, not to crying the, the role of civil servants. But I, I want to just dig into the appointments process, which we're, we're dancing around a bit here. I mean, Hannah or Jill, can you just take us through how special advisors are appointed and whether there's any kind of challenge at that point? No, I mean, special advisors, um, as far as I'm aware, 
are they used to be selected by the minister. What used to happen is either a minister would bring in, uh, particularly if they're coming in from opposition, the people who've been on their teams, not all of them, and the only sort of glitch in the appointment process, apart from things like agreeing their salaries, was to get number 10 say so, because the prime minister had to sign it off. I remember way back when I was a very junior civil servant, uh, my, the then chancellor wanted to appoint a special advisor called William Hague, uh, who was very, very young at the time. And Mrs. Thatcher told him in no uncertain terms that he couldn't have special advice from a 21-year-old. He'd make himself look a laughingstock. And number 10 turned down that appointment. So he went on the payroll at Conservative Central Office, as then was. But generally, it, there's appointed by the ministers. One of the things that's already much more interesting, we already had the Sajid Javid row back in February, is that number 10 see a very different relationship between special advisors now. Number 10, I think, for some time rather aspired to have special advisors sort of, you know, looking and reporting into the centre rather than working to their... Into Dominic Cummings, in fact. And this was the row with Sajid Javid. That's exactly the row with Sajid Javid, was over his special advisors, whether there was a now, what there is now, a sort of joint number 10 treasury advisor unit, which is as accountable, if you like, to Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson as it is to Rishi Sunak and his team at the Treasury. So I think we've seen a big change here where it's really clear that you can't appoint special advisors here. Number 10 is going to be much more interventionist and who's acceptable. We saw the sacking last year of uh, Sajid Javid's SPAD when she was frog-marched out of Downing Street. So it's a very different way of using special advisors, more like a number 10 political network. On the uh, scrutiny, the accountability point, you know, we had this unexpected thing of Dominic Cummings turning up in the garden of uh, uh, Downing Street and offering himself for an hour or so to the the press. But do you think there should be formal accountability? Or as Tim um, was musing on, um, are they really so identified with what their political bosses are doing that the accountability ought to run to the politicians? End of subject. We don't need to question them directly. The parliament doesn't either. If you have um, a lot of control over who you appoint to be your advisor um, and, and then they're working directly to you, then holding you accountable for their actions seems fair. But if actually you've been given a shortlist of who you might appoint by Dominic Cummings um, and then actually that person, once they, they're, they're in their post, is working to number 10 rather than to you, it becomes increasingly unfair to say, actually, you know, uh, you're responsible for everything they, they do or don't do. Um, so I think, as both Jill and Tim have been saying, we, we've already moved into a situation where the code doesn't seem to adequately re- reflect the reality. And we need, a, I think, a serious rethink about how accountability does work in these circumstances, because it needs to be accountability. I mean, we heard Dominic Cummings say, you know, on a couple of occasions, well, you know, I make a lot of decisions day to day, which I can't take to the Prime Minister. I have to be very selective about what I do take to the Prime Minister. Now, there's no indication he's not doing things that that Boris Johnson would have wanted, but he is taking lots of important decisions on behalf of the country. Um, And, you know, there has to be clear accountability for him doing that. I think yesterday we saw David Frost and... uh, uh David Frost giving evidence uh, to select committees, um, which is a sort of very new thing we use to the fact that special advisors don't ever give evidence in their own right to select committees. But I think that's recognising his his slightly weird status in this thing. So uh, I think at the very least, and uh, I think Alex suggested this, Alex Thomas of IFG suggested this in his piece on SARS, at the very least when these appointments are made, you could expect ministers to write to the relevant select committees, say actually why they think they've got to appoint this person, 
the basis on which they're appointed, what is their task, and you know who is going to be accountable to the relevant select committee. You know, if it's Test and Trace, will Dido Harding go and give evidence to Jeremy Hunt on the success of that, or will it just be for Matt Hancock to answer? And I think you could do a bit to clarify some of that. I want to though just pivot from this to the Prime Minister's own accountability, uh, because we had this week his appearance before the Liaison Committee. That wasn't Prime Minister's questions this week, Parliament's in recess, but he did um, manage to turn up uh, in front of the Liaison Committee, which is the Commons Committee made up of other select committee chairs, and they did their best in a way to give him a grilling. Hannah, just take us through why it was so important. The Liaison Committee is the only committee in Parliament which has the power to take evidence from the Prime Minister. And it is a different sort of scrutiny, I think, from the sort of scrutiny uh, any prime minister gets at, at parliamentary questions, uh, uh, sorry, prime minister's questions, or uh, when responding to questions after making a statement in the House. That there's really the possibility with the liaison committee of chairs asking a series of questions, which means they can dig down into an issue in more detail, and uh, there's 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 less uh, room to hide. Um, if you, uh, you know, if your policy is unclear, or if you don't understand uh, the detail, and I think that everyone was very keen to see uh, Boris Johnson appear before the Liaison Committee. He hasn't done so yet since he became uh, Prime Minister last July. Um, and previously, the convention has been um, that Prime Ministers appear at least two or three times uh, a year, but he hadn't yet done so. Uh, obviously, we had the hi- hiatus after the election. The Liaison Committee hadn't been set up. There was a bit of a row about that. Um, and but it's really important that very quickly after it was set up last week, he agreed to appear, and that he he made that appearance yesterday. How did he do? Well, I think you know the thing that everyone was expecting uh, the the committee to focus on was the the Cummings um, story, which we've been discussing today. Um, and I think in relation to that, I mean, it what the prime minister said didn't move. Uh, the story on didn't really give the story further legs. He was very clear that he felt that, you know, there were, the government was doing important things and, and that essentially everyone ought to move on and discuss something else. And, and he didn't really provide any more ammunition. Um, and I think number 10 will sort of count that as a win in terms of sort of not giving that story more legs. Um, it was really on other topics where the the select committee chairs came in with their subject expertise that we um, saw a more the more useful exchanges, I would say. Um, and I think there was some, you know, some of the MPs were very sort of polemic and and just sort of made speeches rather than asking questions, uh, which is you know never a very uh, effective tactic in terms of a good sort of parliamentary scrutiny. But some of them were really much more. Um, focused, asked some very specific questions and really tried to drill down into the detail. And we saw, for example, Stephen Timms, the chair of the Working Pensions Committee, um, asking questions which really revealed, I think, and most people seem to feel, that the the Prime Minister wasn't fully aware of how uh, his own government's policy um, on on some migrants not having uh, recourse to public funds uh, as a condition of their leave to remain in the country of him not really being aware that that was how the policy was operating and the consequences of those people um, for um, in the context of coronavirus. So I think something like that really shows that, you know, a, a committee can be an important forum and the liaison committee included can be an important forum for um, 
getting uh, ministers and the prime minister in this case to focus on different areas of policy which are really having an impact on people's lives in the country and understand that impact through the medium of MPs asking them questions. And he did refer, when uh, the chair, Bernard Jenkins, pressed him to come back again soon, uh, he did refer to the amount of briefing it took to prepare for these things. Tim, how did you think? I, I, I agree with everything that um, Hannah has said. I, I thought um, it wasn't the Dominic Cummings questions that tripped him up. You know, it was the very detailed sort of specifics that um, of, of the kind that Stephen Timms raised on uh, people with only leave to remain and no right to uh, uh, public funds. Um, I think it was striking the number of times, I don't know how many times he used the phrase, I have to come back to you on that one, um, you know, he, which is better than trying to um, uh, bluster your way through an answer and pretend you know the answer, but it was, I think, striking how on a number of issues where you would hope the Prime Minister was in charge of detail, he wasn't. To be fair to him, and I, perhaps I haven't been as fair to him in some of what I've said as I, I, I should be, but to be fair to him, you know, he has been very ill very recently. You know, he's got a newborn child, um, he's in the middle of an extraordinarily challenging government crisis that would tested even the most experienced of Prime Ministers. So, um, this is not an ideal time for anyone, even at the best, at the top of their game, to have been in front of the liaison committee. But I thought it was interesting he wouldn't commit to Bernard Jenkins to come back anytime soon. And um, I think that will hurt the government after a time. You know, there's, there's one thing for everyone to be complaining that the media, you know, involved in a witch hunt against the government. But when the government then starts denying accountability to Parliament as well, that will begin to raise questions, I think, in the, in the minds of reasonably minded and moderate voters as to whether this government is doing all that it should in terms of answering big questions that this country faces at the moment. And one of the things he did say, he was pressed quite hard on the rest of the government's agenda and would it have any room at all to carry on with those things, either financial room because of the amounts of money going on coronavirus or just sheer time, as you said, I mean, the people... Um, uh, under an awful lot of pressure, and we, we get a lot of um, signs of just how exhausted many of them are. And he talked about the levelling up agenda. He did use those words. He talked about uh, all the other kinds of things that they wanted to do. Um, do you feel that um, he was pressed quite a bit on taxes and so on, and whether he would stick to the manifesto commitments? Do you feel that that's yeah. plausible? Or what should what should we make of that at this point? I don't know. I, I, I think there is a massive debate. From what I understand, there are massive debates taking place um, in government about um, the, 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 the course that needs to be taken after, after lockdown. I think there's a lot of fear of voters on, on lockdown. I think the government seems to me to be following public opinion on how to raise the lockdown rather than leading it. Um, what concerns me, though, Bronwyn, is that these debates about the tax and spend implications of the chapter that we're still living through, they are big debates, but they seem to be happening sort of slightly removed from Downing Street. And um, people are sort of frightened to raise their thoughts almost. There isn't the mechanism whereby a cabinet minister with a view can raise it and get number 10 to listen to them. And uh, and they are afraid. I, I remember from my time in the, you know, working inside the, the machine, the one way people would shut down conversations if people had ideas was Dom doesn't like that. You know, it was almost like it wasn't the prime minister doesn't like that. It was Dom doesn't you know want that. And I've always worried that the reign of terror, as uh, over slightly exaggerating, I describe it, would lead to a reign of error. That people's 
unwillingness to challenge the, uh, the central machine uh, would eventually lead to the central machine making mistake after mistake. And I do think we're in that territory. And my just hope and prayer is that before it's not too late, as we go into this incredibly important post-lockdown phase, a cabinet government is reinstated as, as soon as possible and we get Jeremy Hunt and Sasha Javid and some of the other big beasts with independent minds back into government and who aren't afraid to stand up to either the Prime Minister or, or Mr Cummings. We might have to wait a bit for that one. But I think you, you put your finger on something. There seems a um, desire, perhaps because the economic part of the government's action has gone well so far, though it is has been about handing out money, not about how to, how to get it back. And um, There's a perhaps a desire not to debate that um, in lots of detail at the moment. But we'll have to come back to that also. Um, Can I just say, I do think that the government's wish to uh, get on with the rest of its agenda and and to fulfil some of its manifesto commitments does seem to be what's behind its its decision not to pursue this sort of virtual parliament that we've seen up to now. They've decided that that is really putting too many constraints on their ability to pass legislation uh, at the speed and in the volume that they would like. And because they're very concerned, both in relation to Brexit and in relation to other things that they've committed to do to be able to get that legislation through, I think that's one of the reasons why the the government has said, well, when Parliament returns after the recess, we're not going to be uh, using all these uh, hybrid procedures which tend to slow down and clog up Parliament, um, even though they do, um, on, on the other hand, uh, ensure that all parliamentarians can participate on an equal basis. Yeah, and there has been a row about that, as as we've covered. And just just briefly at the end of this, Hannah, as as you touched on the kind of parliamentary procedures, this was the first outing for uh, Bernard Jenkins as the as the chair of that committee, and there was a big row about his appointment. How do, how do you think uh, he did? Did he justify? Uh, did he um, satisfy? The critics that he was going to be tough on the government. Well, that's right. There was a there was a row because the government decided that he should be chair rather than letting the chairs of that committee elect from amongst their number as they normally would have done. I mean, I think to be honest, his role yesterday wasn't wasn't at the forefront. I mean, he uh, he managed that what is not an easy task, uh, a sort of a complicated Zoom uh, broadcast meet, meeting. You know, he managed that very competently. He he brought the MPs in and out. Really, the main um, impact of the session w- was not from what he did or didn't do, uh, but from from what the other MPs did. Uh, I think you know it's you know, people were were pleased that Boris Johnson agreed to appear before the committee so soon after it was set up with with uh, Bernard Jenkins as its chair. I think that was probably a gesture of support from the government to to uh, Sir Bernard um, to show that you know they weren't going to uh, let him be portrayed as a as a patsy. We'll have to see. Um, you know, as you say, he asked a couple of times the Prime Minister to commit to come back and he didn't do that. While Brexit's been off the front pages recently, the UK's future relations with the European Union are coming back up the agenda, as we can see from the papers. And we've got a new report out this week looking at some of the footwork needed to reach a deal by the end of the year and the tactics that the UK could, in theory, deploy in flexing the timing if it wanted to do so, though it says it doesn't. I'm delighted that one of its authors, IFG senior researcher Georgina Wright, joins us now. Hi, Georgie. Thanks for joining us. No, thank you. 
Okay, so take us into your report a bit. The UK left the EU on January 31st, as the government vowed it would, and the government has said it doesn't want to extend the transition period beyond the end of this year. So why should we even discuss the ways in which it might get an extension? I think that's an excellent question. Government has always been very clear that it does not intend to extend the transition period beyond the end of the year. In fact, it's made that commitment in law. Um, But there are plenty of reasons why it might change its mind later in the year. So one, we know that the challenge is obviously not only about negotiating and reaching an agreement by the end of the year, but it's also about allowing time for ratification, especially on the EU side, but also crucially for businesses and governments on either side um, to prepare for their future trading relationship. And on the preparation side, we know that the government has to fully implement the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, and we've just, at the Institute for Government, published a report on this, looking at some of the challenges there. But it also, the government also needs to implement a brand new customs regime. Um, but it's also really about business preparedness. And that's, I think, where it, where there could be some real challenges. Um, we know the government has told businesses that they need to prepare for a new trading relationship. But the reality is that the outbreak of COVID has really squeezed business capacity um, and their resources to really start planning and preparing for this. And I think what we've been hearing over the past couple of weeks is also businesses saying, well, what does that preparation look like? Um, Certain measures will apply in an agreement, but also in a no-trade agreement scenario. But there are other decisions that really are conditional on the outcome of those talks. Um, So if you take the issue of, I don't know, stockpiling, for example, um, some businesses have said, look, we're reluctant to start stockpiling right now because that you know, would incur huge costs that would become redundant if an agreement is reached. Um, but also, again, COVID makes it very, very difficult to predict what that demand is for stockpiling because we don't know yet what the pressures are going to be on supply chains. So there are all sorts of reasons why at some point later in the year, the government and the EU could decide that more time is needed. What you've said, you started off in this report acknowledging the government's position very firmly at the moment, repeated almost weekly. It feels like it's saying, look, we don't want an extension. But you've argued that um, if it does want one, it's going to have most control over the nature of that extension if it actually bites the bullet and does it and asks for that in June. But you're saying that isn't the last chance. There are actually other uh, technical ways it could ask for an extension if it wants the, the talks to run later and ask for one at last minute. They're just much trickier. That's the kind of thing you said, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. So we sort of looked at, you know, what if there is a change of mind later in the year, but that crucially, that deadline to extend the transition period as it stands has been passed because we know that the government in the EU would need to agree not only to extend, but also on the terms of that extension by the 30th of June. And so we look at four different options, um, but we do make you know, we're very clear that all those options have lots of legal and political challenges and crucially would require goodwill on both sides to make them happen. And just, re- just really briefly, but just take us into a bit of the technical detail about what how what those options for extension would be. So first, I guess it depends on why the UK government and the EU would want more time. So for example, if you were simply looking at uh, more time for businesses to and for government to prepare for a new trading relationship, you could look to create an implementation phase that you would add in as part of the future relationship negotiation. If at some 
when you, the UK and the EU realise that actually they're not going to manage to reach a deal, then they could also look to create an implementation phase and we look down at how that would be possible, what it would require legally and politically. Um, but then if, if the UK and the EU decided they needed more time for negotiations or ratification or implementation, they could look to change the end date of the transition period in the withdrawal agreement. So that could be technically done at any point after the 30th of June. But on the EU side, it's it's quite tricky because it would require it to find a, a sort of a basis in its treaty. Uh, and there are all sorts of complications around that. But it could be possible. And the final uh, option would be to create a brand new transition period, which would begin on the 1st of January 2021. But again, very difficult to see how the UK government would ever countenance that. Mm. Tim, what do you make of this? Do you think coronavirus has changed the calculations? There really isn't very much time, is there? I think on reasonable grounds, I think an extension would be sensible, simply because the lack of focus. Uh, I think particularly the, it's, um, on the negotiations, I could I could see how you know most of the negotiations in any, of this kind are nearly always concentrated in the sort of the last dramatic phase. And you could say, however long the extension is, um, that. Um, that's still going to be needed to be done in the last phase, so why extend? But I think on what Georgina says about business preparedness and other things, that's the real worry for me, is given the huge distraction we've all had, um, do we need a little bit more time? But the politics of this are very different. Um, I'm very aware, you know, amongst the Brexiteers, there was almost this, um, you know, some Brexiteers at least, there's almost this paranoia that any extension is the beginning of a selling out, that it's the beginning of a delay, it gives Keir Starmer an opportunity to sort of get into a much longer extension. So the politics of this for the government are very tricky. Jill, you've been writing loads and loads about this. How do you think this is um, is going to play out? I, I don't think there's any prospect that the government will ask for an extension using the clause in the withdrawal agreement. So I don't think there's any prospect that the government will asked to extend. I thought what was interesting about David Frost yesterday was that uh, uh, when he was giving evidence was that it seemed to me that the UK has said that it's going to assess whether there's good progress um, during uh, in June. That was a sort of mirror image of the EU holding us over a barrel all the time through the Article 50 period that they would assess whether sufficient progress had been made on withdrawal agreement to make it worth talking to us about the future relationship. So the UK said we will assess in June whether there's been good progress and whether it's worth going on with these talks after the end of June or whether we should just be preparing for no deal. I think the government will probably start preparing uh, and trying to gear up business for no deal, though, as both Georgie and Tim have said, that's immensely difficult. We've heard sort of stories about how few people are taking these customs agent training courses. Michael Goh said we need 50,000 of them by the end of the year to be ready. So I think there are some real practical problems. But I didn't get the impression that the UK was proposing to break off the talks when David Frost was talking about it. It seemed to me that they would probably go on talking. And there is a sort of thought that, uh, that you know, it will be... Um, be a sort of you know, crunch point in the autumn to see. One of the interesting ideas uh, that has been knocking around is Raoul Ruparol floating this idea of including a sort of conditional extension for implementation under Article 50 in, uh, in if an FTA is agreed. So Raoul Ruparol was a number 10 advisor. We've been talking a lot about advisors. He was one of these more behind the scenes advisors, rather less high profile. He's got a bit more profile since. Um, but he was an advisor to Theresa May and I think to David Davis. And he suggests you might do something 
where you actually try and make a provision in, as Georgie's saying, in the withdrawal, in the FTA. You get an FTA, but you recognize the free trade agreement, the big trade agreement they're looking at, but you recognize you can't be ready to switch over instantly on day one. So you have some sort of implementation phase including that and that may be something that doesn't take the time pressure off because i think one of the things that tim's saying the brexiteers are very worried about is that it's only deadlines that sort of forces people to negotiate now and if you actually decided now to postpone it for two years you'd actually be end up in 18 months time with exactly the same position with people actually not having made progress and you know gone off and done other things for a couple of years so i think there is a desire to keep that tone pressure up to try and get some sort of agreement to try and get some sort of movement but i think hopefully there will be some recognition that actually business is very preoccupied we've shut down the service economy uh it's different sorts of businesses that would be very damaged by the transition to uh either the sort of deal that boris johnson wants or to no deal and they may need time to get themselves readier and just after christmas is about the worst possible time for making contingency plans uh all that warehouse space we're always talking about and things like that you know it's not good to prepare for christmas and then have to prepare for brexit just uh just eight nine days later and of course there's a, a, you know all going to be considered in an autumn of potentially very bad and worrying economic news and a lot of, of decisions there georgie just briefly at the end what, what what is the last minute you know how late can all these these talks really go I mean, it's an excellent question. If you look at the uh, what's been happening in the EU in Brussels um, this week, so they've obviously, the Commission has put forward a new um, EU budget and Angela Merkel came out and said, we'll need several months to negotiate and pass that deal. So again, it's not just something that's, that's, that's specific to the UK-EU negotiation. Um, how long negotiations can go for? Um, unclear. Uh, the EU have said that they want at least four to five weeks to be able to vote on the deal and have those discussions, not only within the European Parliament and the Council, which is the grouping of the 27 governments, but also so at the national level. Um, but again, what we say very um, strongly in our paper is if you're looking at securing more time, you can't really have those discussions at the last minute. So say at some point in November, because businesses will have already been forced to do some of that preparation. And it's just not, it, it's just not a good idea. You really need to be starting to have those discussions in the early autumn. But even if we can't say what the last minute is, there definitely is one and it's not December 30th. Well, it's 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 definitely different to the Article 50 where it was sort of a yes, no, let's extend. This is this is any decision to add more time or to, you know, cut off negotiations. That in and of itself requires negotiations. Well, that is an extraordinarily challenging six months for the government coming up with these two huge um, enterprises on its on its plate. Coronavirus, uh, biggest health uh, problem of, um, of of our generations, really, and uh, uh, and then Brexit as well. Both of which we will stay on. That is the end of this week's Inside Briefing. My great thanks to Hannah White, Jill Rutter, Tim Montgomery, and Georgina Wright. If you want more IFG work, and right now you really should, do check out our podcast collection, IFG Live. There's more Brexit there and interview with Stefan de Rink, senior advisor to Michel Barnier, and more coronavirus and more economics too, with an expert panel taking a closer look at the government's business support package during the crisis. You can find all our work at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. 
That's it for today. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Keep safe. And if you feel the urge to test your eyesight, perhaps test it on our reports first. 